It's no surprise that updating the electricity grid today will make for a better tomorrow. Increased self-sufficiency is just one of the benefits. The Great Grid upgrade will also boost the economy and create new green jobs. And best of all, you can continue doing the things you love, like watching the latest epic nature documentary or listening to this podcast while caring for the planet too. Find out more at nationalgrid.com. You're listening to The Plodcast, the nature and countryside podcast from BBC Countryfile magazine. I'm Fergus Collins and I'm your host. In this, our last episode before Christmas, we are appropriately talking about partridges, one of the famous birds of the festive season, or so the song goes. In Britain, our native grey partridge is not doing so well. So I met up with writer, nature lover and editor of The Shooting Times, Patrick Galbraith, to search for them in the Sussex countryside talk about what can be done to turn the tide. Don't forget to leave likes and positive feedback on whichever podcast provider you use, and you can email me, editor at countryfile.com. Patrick, hello. Hi there. Doing? Very well, thank you. You've, t- you've enticed me all the way from Wales down to this glorious, very quaint village to, uh, to talk about, well, to talk about wildlife partridges in particular, but also your book. Yeah, it's interesting to be back here because I was here twice when I was writing the book. The first time with an ornithologist, I was with him nearby and uh, we were actually at the pub and he said to me, we must go and look at this window. And I didn't know about the window at that point. But um, there's an amazing stained glass window just in this church we're looking at here, which is the Gilbert White uh, Memorial Window. And Gilbert White, he's really sort of known as as Britain's first naturalist. Um, And he wrote about grey partridges here in this parish uh, at the time that he was preaching, they were plentiful, and now there are none. Gilbert White was writing in the 18th century, is that right? Yeah, that's yeah, right, so that's it's right. A long, you know, that's a time when most people were sort of probably head down in the soil sort of thing, and he had time to look at wildlife, study it. He did, and also I think what's so amazing, and I, I write this in, in the start of the chapter, actually, the, the chapter starts inside the church, but when he was writing, the, the sort of space between magic and and science there sort of wasn't a space between magic and science so they used to speculate that um you know that, that swallows used to go down into muddy pond bottoms and would re-emerge again in spring or they'd fly up very high so there was this really sort of everything was quite speculative um which i think is is really interesting but also he was sort of coming to conclusions which were well ahead of his time as well and uh, so to just the, the book is um, in Search of One Last Song. Yes, it's, it's called In Search of One Last Song, Britain's Disappearing Birds and the People Trying to Save Them. What I wanted to do initially with the book was to try and understand the way that birds are really deeply embedded in British culture. So when we lose our birds, um, you know, it's not just losing sort of you know, feather and, and song, it's losing a lot more than that. And, and the grey partridge, you know, it was just everywhere really. It was, it was symbolic of the countryside, but the countryside as it was, um, and as farming has become more intensive and as we've sought to eke out ever higher margins, the, the grey partridge has done pretty badly. Yeah, I, I had the Observer's Book of Birds when I was eight, first book, bird book I ever received, and it describes the grey partridge as extremely common, mm. and that's, this is the 1970s. So it's been a relatively recent decline of the partridges. I mean, I'm talking not since the 70s, probably since the Second World War. Yeah, it really has been. More about I mean... <laughs> 
The Swiss ornithologist who works for the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, who lives quite near here, he said to me, you have no idea how many millions of grey partridges there were in Britain. He said it was the most common farmland bird. Um, but interestingly, you know, they would have, at one point, he was saying, been on the periphery. And then, you know, as we sort of deforested, they moved inland and they did very well when you had sprawling hedges and you had winter stubble there was plenty of places for them to shelter and there were plenty of places um, for them to find food and and now with with bigger fields um, and with getting rid of hedges which is all relatively new it's a sort of post-war thing um, that's that's you know the point at which they started to go and then of course the ubiquitous red leg partridge um, and you know we see those all over the place your listeners will see those all over the place also has a part to play more recently in that we're going to come and we'll and come on go, to that go, later. Go we might even days. see. Hopefully, we'll see some greys. But fantastic! Really. It's been a long time since I've seen a grey partridge. Um, so we're at this church. Uh, this is is Gilbert White buried here. I mean, Gilbert I White know. is buried here. He's buried actually, I think, just around the corner. Um, it's quite an amazing. We can only see the the back of it, uh, the window from here, but you can actually make out. Can you make out the grey partridge there? I can. Yes. Yeah. A very very typical sort of slightly dumpy, dumpy little bird. And it's at yeah, the, it's right in the, middle, the feet of um, St. Francis of Assisi. You'd be doing well if you could identify St. Francis on this side <laughs> of the window. But he's very, um, I write about it in the start of the chapter, he's very kind of pretty and boyish in this image. And I think it was almost exactly 100 years ago that this window was put in here. And it's St. Francis preaching to all of the birds and animals that feature in Gilbert White's writing. So it's really quite eclectic. There's all kinds of, all kinds of things in there. Magnificent. Magnificent. Well, this is wonderful. It's a very peaceful corner of the countryside to to, to find Gibbert White. Well, obviously his resting place. Should we have a quick look? For Let's his? have a look. Yeah, it feels like a sort of pilgrimage that <laughs> <laughs> I've never been to Selborne, so it's yeah, I've read. It's a sort of pilgrimage for people who are interested in nature. Certainly, I think I think it's one of these here. Okay, yeah, this incredibly lichen-covered. I think it's that one actually. Oh, yeah, okay. The lady I saw the um, the vicar here when I was here before. Um, and she was telling me that's where it was. Quite a plain gravestone, plain. really. Yeah, it's got yeah. a sort of arch. But, it's but I think that's almost maybe... I mean, he really did die quite a long time ago, so I think the sort of... The notion of those very Victorian um, and ornate gravestones was maybe a, a slightly later thing. Well, thank you, Gilbert, for all your writing. Where would we be? There probably wouldn't be shooting times and country... Well, there probably be... I don't know. Well, he does write about shooting. So he writes that um, he writes that in in some years, grey partridges breed so successfully. He says that some unreasonable parties of sportsmen shoot as many as thirty in a day. You know, and you now have people, you know, unreasonable sportsmen. Some might say shooting as many as thirty red leg partridges in one drive. So that's a really interesting um, interesting change. And certainly, thirty grey partridges would keep you uh, eating for quite a long time. So I should say to everyone at home, um, Patrick is editor of the Shooting Times. Uh, which is Shooting Times and Country magazine. Shooting Times and Country. And all kinds of other titles. Over yeah. the years, we've absorbed all sorts of the, uh, the Sea Anglers Times. I see. <laughs> Shooting at sea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, they did, I think, once. <laughs> um, so you've got a, a, a you know, genuine, in deep take on, on shooting, conservation, and some of these big issues that we've, we've talked about a lot in the podcast over the last three years but yeah I think um, so I mean I, I really got a sense when I've been editing the magazine now for um, just over five years and I was 23 when I started editing it so I was the, the youngest editor in the 140 year span that the magazine's been uh, published for and there were all sorts of people I came across who felt that the things that they 
feel deeply weren't really being understood. And that goes right across. So some of these guys were old gamekeepers who felt that shooting had become far too intensive and that, you know, younger keepers didn't really understand that and younger keepers weren't really naturalists in the way that they saw themselves um, as being, which sounds a little bit like, you know, a kind of fuddy-duddy thing and, and some of them are aware of that but that really These interested young me today, well, exactly, yeah. Know, yeah. yeah but that really interested me and um and and then just farmers as well i mean i was down uh, not far from where you live in in west wales with a with a guy who's devoted sort of really his whole life to trying to save the lapwing down there you know and the disconnect that he feels with policymakers is just tremendous um so that was where the book sort of started from, but it, it talks to all sorts of people, so animal rights activists and anti-shooting activists and keepers uh, and poets and musicians and writers as well, because as I say, you know, I wanted to know about the various ways that birds and, and birdsong inspires them and their work. So I've read the book, in fact, most of the book, and um, it is it actually, when I was reading it, these are all a series of quests, a bit like some of our podcasts where we go off to find something and talk about stories along the way i found quite a lot of it was nice to be walking with you and meeting these characters that's one of the strengths of the book i think yeah um, how did you know all these people beforehand or no you i dig, didn't dig them so out it was a really them out really, really sort of um quite laborious but also enjoyable process of you know so I went to see for example a Thatcher in East Anglia and he said to me that for four generations my family have got read from four generations of the Randall family so he said four generations of Dodson have got their read from four generations of Randall he said you must go and try and see the Randalls so at that point I went off to Norfolk and spent two weeks um in this cottage there trying to track down Henry Randall who's the reed cutter and I was looking all around the coast for this guy and eventually I found him and he lives so far inland that you can't even see the coast you can't see where he cuts the reed because he's just been priced out of this incredibly expensive part of the country so that was kind of how those journeys worked and unfolded that one thing led to another thing and yeah. led to another thing well, and yeah. you know when I finished it I thought I would never really finish this book in, in a sense because you know one person always leads to another and one sort of thought leads to another place it's a very melancholic title and, yeah, and a lot of the stories aren't. I mean, they're painful. Yeah, anyone, anyone who's been around, you know, I, I'm I'm almost twice your age, but I have seen declines throughout my life, and some and some great successes. Yeah, definitely. yeah, there, there are winners and losers. But a certainly. lot of these birds are. You said it earlier. They're they're kind of key characters. They're sort of deep in our folklore. These mm. are the birds that live alongside us. Yeah, um, yeah. That have in, yeah, they're in poetry. They're in church windows they're in they're sort of cornerstones of british mm. culture which is but people have i mean turtle you know, doves yeah yeah slapwings and you know i found i mean i found it quite moving writing the book but i people sometimes contact me on social media and say you know just reading your book i'm in tears and i think is that a good thing or is it, or is it you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> and actually um, I was, that's a hard one to answer yeah yeah i was reading at the the wigton book festival a very good book festival on monday and the lady comparing the event reading i was reading for the turtle dove chapter and she was in tears so it's it's amazing i think the emotional connections that people have with these birds particularly if they spent their whole life uh with them it's a loss of life it's a loss of movement it's a loss of song it's i mean partridges lapwing lapwings have a good song lapwings do have a good song i mean partridges they have a, a scratchy alarm call which right. feels very kind of agricultural yeah. and sort of so it, it's not it's not beautiful i think the ornithologist in the chapter says it's it's not lovely song he says it's just a sort of ugly scratchy whatever yeah. but um, search of one last scratch exactly yeah <laughs> but it is it, it, it 
it does it's evocative and mm. that's what i think a lot of these a lot of these 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 sounds do i mean soundscapes are an extraordinary thing the way that they're there and we don't often realize it but i think the way that soundscapes inspire art is very interesting shall we go and see if we can get some sounds one of the things that that some people uh, remarked on with my book is that i'm always lost in the book which is very much it's not for effect i sort of my sense of direction is very bad so i'm retracing a, a journey i suppose that i was on i shouldn't um, say that we've already gone out of the wrong end of the village Come yes back again that is true so, so. i was saying we had a one in two chance of getting it right we got it wrong um so we came back through the village but but this was the, the the estate where I was looking at grey partridges with this ornithologist and I think you were saying it's a very agricultural landscape but actually you know as you remarked yourself it's quite interesting because you look at it and it does look quite different to you know somewhere like Lincolnshire or parts of Lincolnshire or those you know it's it's farmed in a much less intensive way so you've got this strip running right at the middle here it's a massive strip it's not a tiny huge strip strip, yeah and if you think of the cover that you've got in there and you've got some flowers in there um and teasels and um can we get a bit closer yeah I think yeah um yeah it's a massive it must be 30 yards wide and it runs for the length of this field right, it must field, be yeah. half a mile long so the grey partridge is seen as like a barometer species so when the grey partridge does well you essentially know that everything else is probably doing well and the grey partridge chicks particularly when they're born um, they're reliant on insects and, and as we all know you know we have far fewer insects now in the countryside than we once did but they really I think for the first few weeks of their life the, the number of insects they're eating a day is just extraordinary and you get uh, a lot of insects where you get these flowers and you get all kinds of things like um, like ladybird larvae as well, which is which is really really rich, um, and keeps them going, and and that's what you get here. But also the cover is really important. I mean, where we've seen a lot of buzzards and a few kites around here. Exactly, yeah. Buzzards. But I mean, if you're a buzzard, you couldn't possibly no. hunt in there because they can just get right down in there. That's so a proper it's, thicket. It really so it's amazing, thick. yeah. And that's and that's just what what birds like the grey partridge have lost, yeah. um, because you know if you're not farming this, uh, you, you'll get you'll get some some grants for not doing so but but you know is that the is that the main reason or is there a specific partridge recovery strategy on this land on this land there's a specific um strategy so what they've what they've done here is they've said essentially that they're not going to shoot until they uh, get the partridges back to a sufficient number to shoot a few gray partridges and that's a really interesting thing i think because people would say well why would you possibly shoot something that's endangered but but if you like here the partridge for them is the kind of carrot you know they're always chasing a sufficient number of partridges to be able to shoot a few and when i was talking to them um a year and a half ago two years ago they said they hadn't got there yet but this summer has been a very good summer for grey partridges so it, it may be the case that they're, that they're there now was the dryness the, the dry summer was good for was very good yeah what they always used to say is that if it rains in ascot week um, which is not an event i've ever been to but they always used to say if it rains in ascot week it's going to be a poor year for partridges and so that's the middle of june obviously so yes, just when they've hatched um and and the mothers uh, that the mothers won't kind of leave them alone so um so so yeah they'll just stay on the nest they're very good mothers and and the mothers do this thing where they pretend that they've got a broken wing and will run around to try and draw the the, the predators off as well and the, and the fathers are very um pugnacious you know they've been recorded flying at all kinds of predators many times their size yeah. um, so that i think that's one of the reasons people like them so much actually is because a lot of character a lot of character and i think we liked that one of the funny things is that we call them english partridges but actually you know you get the same partridges in hungary um you know in lots of parts of eastern europe so i, I think part of it is that we like to kind of claim them as our own because we think that in some way you know that the values that they hold in a very anthropomorphic way are the sort of values that we hold dear too oh, i see 
pugnacious defence of the uh, of the own territory. Of the, of the yeah, re- yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. As a sort of island. Uh, we won't have the, and the red-legged partridge. Also, it's called the French partridge. Is that right? Exactly. So, <laughs> so to differentiate, so to differentiate them, and that, yeah, I mean, the French partridge was introduced as a species to to hunt, uh, and and there weren't that many there for quite a long time, and then it started to be the case that the grey partridge numbers depleted and depleted, um, and and they they realised they could carry on shooting or they could shoot even more if they just put red legs down because with with the greys you have to have that kind of give and take thing you know you have to look after the landscape for them and then you can shoot all year round all year round and you can shoot a sort of sustainable surplus and you can't shoot more than that whereas with reds you can you can put them down so it's not a sort of you know give a bit and take a bit thing to the same extent so just literally releasing birds to be shot well yeah i mean do some survive and breed of the red yeah they do yeah 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 yeah. i mean the, the interesting thing though is that that the wild grey is a much better parent because they've been taught how to be a parent. You know, whereas if you've been bred in captivity, you haven't, um, you, you know, you, you haven't had to sort of fend off predators in the same way, or rather, you haven't had to escape from predators. I suppose. I see. Bit. So you haven't been tested against the wild. No. So when they when they release greys, they often do a thing. They 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 foster. They they breed greys in captivity, and then they foster them to wild parents, which is so quite get some complicated. Sort of, yeah. yeah. It's important too to recognise that there are lots of places where um, red legs are released, where there is a benefit to biodiversity um, because you know they, they also need habitat to live in and they need cover and so on. But so that encourages farmers to or landowners to produce this sort of. Yeah, for, uh, for, for greys, for, yeah, for, for, for red legs, for red legs uh, as well. For, for, well, not maybe quite like this, but they do need cover. So, so you know, you couldn't have just bare fields that you were farming the hell out of with red yeah. legs. Um, but it's a, it's quite a complicated picture, certainly. And the other thing is, is that you know, with red legs, you tend to be shooting far more, and the greys don't really like disturbance. And and also, you know, gamekeepers of old swallow just went by. Okay, we around us. We're well, very late. <laughs> swallow. Sorry, it's we're time we're literally to go. the last day of last day of. Um, September. The last one, yeah. That, I mean, it's 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 really complicated the the picture between the greys and the reds. But certainly, where people are doing an awful lot to try and um, revive populations of greys, red legs are not um, not, not good news. No, um, you're a shooter. I yeah. Take it. yeah, yeah. How often do you shoot? Um, this season less than normal because it's been very difficult for people to get the birds into the country. But I would say I shoot because of avian flu. Because of avian flu, which is a big problem for for all sorts of. Um, different reasons this year and, and the birds in general but I shoot maybe 10-15 times a year and I just enjoy really being out there and wildfowling as well is, is something I really I mean one of the things with shooting is it takes you to places at strange times so most people aren't out there at dawn um, you know on the marsh but but if you're wildfowling you often are and it's a really special time of the day. So you're shooting wild birds mostly uh, or, or wild? Uh, well a whole mixture yeah. a whole a whole a whole mixture but I but shooting wild birds is brings me a lot more pleasure certainly um, than shooting reared birds I think that when you're shooting wild birds it gives you a great appreciation of their of their brilliance really so you know when you are shooting something like um, snipe for instance you know to see those birds and, and you know snipe gets shot so infrequently because they're such fantastic flyers so you know the word sniper comes from snipe uh, and it just yeah I mean their their ability on the wing is 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 greatly appreciated just after you've missed one which i think for some people is probably yeah 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 yeah. and for some people that's probably you know uh, something that 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 doesn't sit well with them um but it's an interesting thing certainly would you eat the snipe 
Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Snipe's okay. delicious. Snipe's oh, really, okay. really delicious. Do you, you wouldn't shoot? Do you shoot anything that you don't? No, use? no, no. Yeah. I mean, obviously, covert control goes on and things. I don't, I don't shoot covert myself, but you know, gamekeepers will shoot covert. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean. No, it's a, and that's another thing. Is um, I had a very interesting conversation with a guy called Mark Avery, who I think you know. The other day we yes. were having dinner, and he knows a hell of a lot about birds. But um, he was saying to me he doesn't really know about how they taste. Um, so, so we were talking about that, and I was saying to him, you know, a bird like the teal is hugely prized for its flavour, and like a widgeon less so. So that's, it, and it struck me as being strange as somebody um, you know, who's eaten quite a lot of these birds that people who are very into them might not actually know which ones. Mark Mark Avery is a is a environmental campaigner yeah I'd say. A former yeah. rspb man head of and, conservation at yeah. the rspb yeah, yeah. So, um, so but i think it, i mean that's a good example of something i wanted to do with the, the book was to meet people whose views are different to my own and yeah. very often you find that actually you've got really quite a lot of common ground as well as differing on things there is the issue of millions of pheasants being released and we haven't talked mm. about pheasants we've talked about red legs millions of pheasants being released every year and this is the time of year i know there's fewer this year because of avian flu but this is the time of year when the pheasant season starts isn't yeah. It? yeah yeah well october so, yeah so okay, yeah it's very close to the yeah. starting um what are your thoughts on just the sort of shooting parties where hundreds of freshly relatively fresh released birds are just shot does that seem i think i think yeah very few people I know who shoot don't recognise that there are parts of the sport that have become too big, um, you know, and that the whole thing has, has, has been slightly, you know, it's moved very much away from what it once was. Um, what, just a few people, a couple of dogs? Yeah, well, I mean, if you talk and to old keepers, and, and, and old keepers feature in my book saying that they think that shooting went wrong when it became business, which is quite interesting. Um, but then, you know, people who are running often shoots like this one will sell a few days, which essentially pays for their conservation work. Um, so I, I think it's important to look at different shoots and what different shoots are doing and to be pretty honest and say, you know, is there a net biodiversity gain happening here or, you know, is the reverse happening? And, and that's not that hard to work out, really. But just to say, you know, shooting good or shooting bad um, is, is no, I, simplistic. Absolutely. But I think, is anyone monitoring? That's the thing. Is there a, or is it all self-monitored? Because... Well, I mean, I give you a... University of Exeter's doing some interesting Yeah, they're doing some interesting into, stuff. Into like um, Joe Madden, I think it is. There's uh, a very interesting thing I was watching. There's a program called Jack's Game, where Jack Charlton used to go around and do sort of country pursuits on Yorkshire television. Not going back that long, really, yeah. um, but a pretty different world. And he says in his pheasant shooting episode, there are 10 million pheasants shot in this country each year, 5 million are reared and 5 million are wild. Um, and, you know, there are now... God, no, 50, 60 maybe released. I mean, it's million. Yeah, 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 yeah. Depending on who you ask, they'll, they'll give you a different figure. Yes. And certainly right. half of those are not wild. And that's a reflection of two things. I mean, one, that many more birds are being released, but also that we're farming in a very different way because, you know, it's harder and harder and harder for a hen pheasant to find a quiet corner to raise a brood. Um, so we need to keep topping up the numbers by yeah. tens of millions. Yeah. But then, but then, you know, it's, it's, it's harder and harder for wild game to succeed because we're farming in a different way to feed everybody and to keep sort of food prices cheap so you've got all sorts yeah. of different factors at play and I think one thing I really wanted to do with the book was not to sort of was to try and be as honest as I possibly could and was I wanted to you know confront things that, that I've you know I'm involved in as somebody who shoots um, but I didn't want to kind of blame anybody and, and point the finger which I think is where we 
sometimes go wrong. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is there's some strong arguments, and I've talked about it quite a lot today as well about biodiversity gain, mm. sort of overall gain, which um, I am interested very much in sort of things like. Uh, reptile declines and insect declines. Yeah, yeah, that sort yeah. Of thing, that's really you have interesting. Really yeah. intense pheasant releases. Yeah, um, and I think we're th- just starting to understand that actually, because yeah. you know, I mean, as I say, the 1980s to now is not a very long period. So I, I think you know, there are all sorts of different scientific bodies who are looking at these things, like the Game Conservancy, and then you've got the RSPB on the other side. And what we really need is for those guys to work together and to sort of, you know, because science sort of competes with other science but i think if everybody can kind of come together and 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 kind of share and look at case studies together then we're in a much better place we should go and look for some partridges yeah we you see there is a kind of dumpy shape you're doing pretty well there's a dumpy shape just further up there creeping in can you see that yeah there's two actually let's get them get the bins on them oh yes i saw something moving (laughs) with my eyes not with binoculars Something scuttled in. It looked like a hen pheasant, but maybe. When I when I was writing the book, I kept on. I had this kind of fear that I wasn't capturing landscapes as they really are, and I almost to the point of like kind of madness. And I came. I was with Francis all day here, and then I came back a couple of days later because I can't remember what it was, but I I just felt that I hadn't quite got it. And with Francis, all we found was a grey partridge feather. And then when I came back, um, there were two cockbirds who were scrapping in the stubble which was really with a kind of feather and, and dust flying everywhere so yeah. it's a real uh, it's, it's a really amazing thing yeah. really ama- and they really fight like they yeah. really really do scrap it's quite an amazing thing to see so it's been a good year for them yeah um, where do people where if we talked about not being in Wales where do you find them generally in the UK so I mean the funny the funny thing is is that is that is that where they're doing very well is really on shooting states on, on on shooting states that really want to bring back their grey partridges. Um, so, you know, where I went to see them later on in this chapter, there's a young a young keeper there, and they took the partridge numbers. They count them in pairs. So they they took the because they they mate for life, but they took them I think from like 14 to over 100, which is quite amazing. But what they've got there is a farmer who's completely dedicated to grey partridges. So he says to his gamekeeper you know is it okay if i do this and the gamekeeper turns around and says no absolutely not because that won't be good for the partridges and the the farmer will lose out financially on that but you know he feels that what he's gaining through those partridges recovering is is far greater than any financial loss um which is which is extraordinary i mean it's quite enlightened which is really enlightened it's a real privilege to be able to do that um and then there's an old guy brilliantly called gerald gray who's a fifth generation gamekeeper who i went to see in norfolk um they're doing very well there but they're only shooting sort of two days a year and they're shooting grey partridges shooting grey partridges but you know he was saying to me as well that you know most of his career was just turning around and saying to the man who employs him I'm sorry you can't shoot this year because we don't have sufficient numbers and that was you know and and the, the, the boss would say not a problem I'll try again next year but of course the ability to do that requires very deep pockets yeah um which 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 doesn't you know so it wouldn't work to run a grey partridge shoot commercially um is there a way of farming that is both profitable and wouldn't would help the grey partridge and obviously all these other farmland birds that we you know the linnets the skylarks the corn buntings so sort of one of the things that i think it, it, it can be really interesting about narrative non-fiction is it provides a kind of snapshot of time yeah. so 
when um, I was writing my book, there were lots of people who were very excited about Elms, and, and they said, you know, Elms is going to change everything, and you know. So Elms is. So Elms is. Let me just get the acronym right. It's Environmental Land Management Scheme. That's it. That's is that? It, it, that is exactly it. Yeah. and it's replaced the high-level stewardship and entry-level stewardship of the previous. Um, so yeah, it was, and it was all part of of kind of biodiversity recovery, um, and basically paying paying farmers, taxpayers, money to look after the land for nature yes but we all benefit from nature is the, is this is the point um so they call it common goods or, yes or exactly yeah, exactly yeah. exactly there was a um there was a kestrel that just flew by over there hunting mm-hmm. a bit of ground there i've got my back to a lot of the action to block the wind but uh, and you see those birds oh. sort of bursting up so when i was writing the book a lot of people were very excited about elms and at so the post, moment, post Brexit, post Brexit, so post Brexit, they were very excited about it. And you know, there was a hedge layer in the book who said to me, "We are on the brink of an agricultural revolution in this country," um, and now it's just not clear what's actually going to happen. They say that there are sort of things coming down the line, but it's just interesting that there was so much hope at that point, and the world of conservation now is sort of in despair about you know what could have been. Yes, um, um, at time of recording, we were in a bit of a turmoil post. Um, various announcements and rumours coming out about what's going to happen with these schemes so uh, there is a lot of anger out there I know the RSPB has sort of unprecedented language yeah. in its tweets and in its messaging and, and lots it's almost like a uni- united conservation voice at the moment yeah. which is so, uh, so people yeah. people were going to be given more money to do things like this and of course you know, at the moment you, you do get grants for doing things like this but was going to happen to a greater degree and people weren't going to be able to rely on essentially uh money for not really doing anything at all so like the basic payment and then the single farm payment um, in scotland so so yes you get subsidized to do things like this but but actually for for lots of people it's just better to kind of carry on and just farm conventionally have you got your partridge eyes in today (laughs) they're pretty hard they're pretty hard to see yeah, I mean, okay. when they fly, when they and when when they fly, you can see the underside of the wing, um, but they really blend into the landscape. We just want the the cock partridge when it's displaying, kind of throws off any sense of danger, right. uh, and then they're very vulnerable, which is a which yeah, is a sort the, of the urge to breed. Yeah, the yes, urge to breed yeah. just you know overtakes all species. Maybe that's another thing that we see in the grey partridge, and we value this kind of see it in ourselves. Yes, yeah, it's sort of losing the when we, yeah. Um, yeah. Reckless horniness, that's what we, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those leaden days of autumn. It's not going to rain. It said it was going to pour down. By now. It feels like it. There's a, there's a, there's a, it, yeah, it, it's very heavily autumnal. The trees are turning, but not a lot of partridge action out here. So we've just walked along the windiest road here, the windiest lane in Sussex with a couple of interesting things to talk about. But um, firstly, we're looking back across... There these go. We're looking back across a field of golden stubble with wood pigeons in the tens, if not hundreds, out there. Yeah. They are wheat, a wheat stubble, and they're just getting blown around in a very autumnal yeah. way. But it's amazing that there's still food for them there, and it just gives you a really good example of you know, why stubble in the winter is, is valuable, because... You know, you've got pickings there for things like the grey partridge and, you know, as we can see for things like the pigeon, whereas if they cultivate that straight away, um, you know, then there's, then there's just a, a barren landscape for them. There's nothing really for them there. Is this something that's happening a bit more often 
um, that stubble is being left a little bit more because I've been very aware of autumn planting where yeah, yeah. stubble gets ploughed straight in and so a new crop. So winter, winter cropping rather than yeah. spring cropping. Yeah, I think people are starting to realise the benefits of it more. Um, and obviously it's, it's, it's part of the stewardship scheme as well. Um, so that's quite interesting. And, and, you know, here, obviously, they're trying to do things for their grey partridges. And we've seen it all over the place. So it's sort of, yeah. you know, it's, it's a lot of food, a lot of wild food. A lot of food, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you've got weeds that come through as well. So weed seeds that are a big, big part of it for them. It's quite nice to see it. Oh, and they've got an apple tree here. Well, I just saw that. I just saw that. I thought yeah, I might yeah, have yeah. to go across and get myself an apple. Yeah, that's all done. <laughs> but it's a very bountiful time, and it's interesting that, um, you know, this, this sort of wild harvest. It's funny because it feels like it's a time of year when everything is kind of dying away, but you've still just got blackberries there, uh, and you've got apples there. Well, so a lot of people sort of... will be saying, oh, I'm not seeing so many birds on my bird feeders at the moment, but they're going out to the countryside and getting, exactly, getting yeah. decent food. Yeah, and, um, yeah. Yeah, they're gorging themselves on natural food, which they know, you know when they when they need to, they'll be back in the gardens for, for um, the peanuts. For the peanuts, exactly. Yeah, this is wonderful. Uh, we've also passed, um, which you picked up, the the, the, the backbone, the spine of a rabbit, yeah. which um, was lying in the middle of the road, uh, probably a road. I'm, I'm assuming a roadkill. It had been picked clean, just a little bit of fur on it. But we were we were talking about that, and it'd be nice to just sort of capture that. Um, yeah, I mean, about the, rabbits. I mean, the start of my book starts off with memories that I've got of of stalking rabbits. I used to make very. Um, very sort of bleak rabbit pie when I was young and rabbit casserole it was always far too chewy <laughs> one of the probably the, the first things yeah. that I cooked but I used to spend a lot of time stalking bleak rabbits rabbit pie yeah. sounds like a, yeah, you must like, bring, bring that into kind the of Thomas Hardy uh, <laughs> yeah plot line but um, no so you know there were rabbits everywhere and then I was I was just saying that you know I occasionally come across people who are sort of the same age that I was then who will tell me that they'll spend their time trying to uh, to, to, to shoot rabbits in, in Dumfries and Galloway and in other places and they just can't find them anymore so the number of rabbits has just really dropped away and it's you know as you were saying when, when the common things go you know you know that we've got a bit of a, a bit it's of a problem really shocking now rabbits are it's, it's, it's disease issues and habitat issues but yeah so I mean, myxomatosis was obviously the big one and then um sort of hemorrhagic disease as well but you know i talk a lot to ferreters and they're always interesting because you know they spend their whole life thinking about rabbits and, <laughs> and they will they will say that you know when they're not thinking about ferrets i guess but they will say that um <laughs> That, that they come back a little bit and then they go, which is which really, is they have you know, one last little yeah yeah. Uh, and you used to have rabbit catchers who were you know catching mm. rabbits professionally, which is a, an interesting thing. Well, we've seen a rare species. We can still see it on the road. Um, probably a roadkill. It's a croissant. The croissant that's fallen what? down from the croissant tree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you do wonder uh, how or, that's ended up. Or it's on migration back to France. I don't. We just have to speculate on how it's got there. Those very, uh, the <laughs> very bougie uh, Sussex farmers throwing their croissants <laughs> out <laughs> yes, the window. Brilliant. Um, so it's good and bad news. The bad news first, we've arrived at this absolutely beautiful pub, the Harrow Inn, after a few, uh, well, I'd say a, a lot of cross-country driving and some false starts and false dawns. It's shut. Last, last time I was here, I didn't have any uh, cash with me, and it's cash only. And uh, well, luckily, I've got this cash. time, this yeah. time I've got cash, but it's closed. It's closed. Okay, um, so third time lucky. But they do have this wonderful uh, display of fruit, apples and pears. They've got some. Flowers. They've got some sweet peas. They've got apples of every variety. So I think, given we've just, how was your how was your apple? 
that we had from the tree. Oh, I haven't tried it yet. Oh, you haven't no, tried it yet? Okay, well, it was good. Mine was very good, okay, yeah, but I think I'll go for some pears instead, given we've done apples. We'll get four for a pound. So it's four for a pound, so we can have okay. two each. Brilliant. Well, we'll, go, um, we'll, we'll, we'll have a healthy pub lunch. Patrick, are you optimistic about the future of partridges? Of the grey partridge. And, and farmland wildlife in general? I think when I finished the book, I've been asked this question a few times actually, you know, did the book make you optimistic or otherwise? And um, in many ways the book made me deeply sad, but I also, <laughs> I also finished writing it with a huge sort of renewed faith in people to some degree. So I think collectively we have done some pretty awful things, but there are individuals out there who are doing absolutely everything they can. Um, and I met a new age, um, well, I suppose he had been a new age traveller. He's now sort of has put down roots in Findhorn. And he said to me, you understand, don't you, that if we're going to save wildlife, it's going to take a lot of love. And I think what he was saying was sort of quite abstract, but actually there's really a lot of truth in that. And there's a lot of love for the grey partridge. And, and that gives me hope. You know, there are people who are doing everything they possibly can to save the grey partridge and are farming in grey partridge friendly ways. So, you know, if we can, to just extend his comment a bit, if we can have a bit more love among one another and appreciate, you know, each other's perspectives. Um, so if we can appreciate what, you know, some shoots are doing for the grey partridge um, and, you know, if some other shoots can appreciate why you know, shoots that are doing things for the great partridge are doing things differently to the way that they're doing things. Um, then I think there is, uh, there is. That's, all, that's almost my next question. What, <laughs> what would you like to see? What single thing do you think would improve the chances of our either poli policy? I think probably more than anything. What I think it's listening. You know, I know that. But but you know, the the young keeper I was talking to in Gloucestershire who was saying to me listen he said if we ban snaring in this country there is no hope for the grey partridge that was something that he felt really deeply now that might not be the case but you know given he spends his whole life just trying to save essentially grey partridges on his patch I think going and listening to a person like him who maybe would say things that some people would find unpalatable or I've got power in my mouth um, is very important that's really that's hard for lots of people to hear, I suspect, because snares are being banned in Wales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Proposed. I just read that this morning. I mean, you know, he took me around. He showed me how he sets his snares. You know, I have to say, I've seen photos of, uh, of, of, of creatures that have been caught in snares that make you think nobody should ever use a snare ever again. But that was, you know, what he felt. Now, he also said some things to me that... The, the ornithologist who I spoke to here uh, told me were completely wrong and that's really really interesting but yeah. you know this ornithologist is prepared to listen to people like him and I think he is prepared to listen to people like the ornithologist who I was spending time with you know and it's it's if if we learn to to listen to each other and to you know and, and certainly there are things that we think that probably aren't the case um, and you know there's sort of old rural law uh, which is disputed but but in the middle of all of that i think there is a there is a, a journey through and my greatest worry is that we spend so long arguing with each other and and we become so entrenched that you know we'll still be arguing when species like the great partridge are, are yeah, gone and essentially dance, we make yeah. it about ourselves rather than it being about wildlife yeah what if i record or we're doing a podcast yeah, about great partridges great partridges but this makes a really yeah. nice okay. finale <laughs> okay so we have been blessed because 
the owner. What's your name? Claire and Claire. niece of my sister. We're oh, both owners together. Oh, so. my goodness. Yeah. You've, you've opened, we've allowed us in just for a, a yeah. cheeky half That's just right. before closing. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, and this is, how, you, how old do you say this pub is? Uh, between five and six hundred years old. But wow. parts of it are Victorian, like this bit here behind the bar, and the other bar is Victorian. It's one of so, those perfect... And has it been a pub for that long? Yeah. Wow. So, uh, you know, like um, a drover's in. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. They used to, if you actually look at it, we're actually on a triangle, mm. and they used to pen the cattle up and sheep up here, and before they took them into Petersfield. Oh, really? Because there was um, a market there. Yeah. There was, How long ago would there have ceased to be a market? Well, that was Saxon times. Oh, I don't know. Market. Yeah. Ooh, 60s. Where is, is there a market in Hampshire still? Yes, there is. Oh, and there was one at Winchester, but I think even that's gone now. Yeah, yeah. I think the nearest is Salisbury, where everyone takes it's all their crazy, sheep. It's crazy, isn't it, that markets are just getting fewer and fewer It's and really fewer sad, actually. Yeah. Incredibly sad. Yeah. Really sad. It's, it's yeah. dark beamed, beautiful place. There's a lovely smell of wood smoke. It feels like it's yeah. very welcoming <laughs> as, the storm, as the storm comes well, in. Well, the storm is meant to be happening at three o'clock, and I think it's sort of happened, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's happening. beginning to happen. It's yeah. beginning to do things. But, well, yeah, thank you for letting me into this cake. Well, that's all right. I'm just going to get you another little bit of your heart. We don't have any partridges around here, actually. So. No, well, well we uh, great partridges. Basically, I, I wrote uh, a fact. I, the, 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 pub, the pub features. So this is a, this is the podcast is for the BBC magazine, but the, right. the pub features in the in the book because at the end of talking to a guy about great partridges on the Rotherfield estate, we came to the pub. Oh, did you? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're going to. But lots of people. It's funny. Uh, which chapter? It's the. Oh, I call yeah, I talk about that. It's only a little Can passing I, I'll thing. Just have a quick but all it just says is that the Harrow doesn't take cards, and Francis and I can only cobble together five pounds between us. Oh no! Half is outside. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> Sweet. Quite funny though. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. Oh, on Thank that you. note, how much do I owe you? Uh, no, I'll give you that. That's fine. That's, That's really kind. Oh, that That's so That's kind. Fine. Thank you so That's much. Fine. Bless you. But yes, we don't take cards. Well, <laughs> cheers to Claire. Okay, yeah, thank, you, thank so you. Thank you. Bye now. Bye. This is a podcast with two endings. And this is the happy ending. Patrick, cheers. Wonderful. Thank you very much. This is great. Cheers. <laughs> so huge thank you to Patrick for a whirlwind tour of Partridge Country, where you may not have found the birds this time, but it's certainly given me a mission for 2023. Hopefully, we'll bring the grey partridge into the podcast at some stage. And Patrick joins the podcast, our Christmas special, next week, when the team and I are also welcoming podcast regulars Annabelle Ross and Kevin Parr. Lastly, a huge thank you to Claire McCutcheon of the Harrow Inn, without whom we would have missed a true countryside treat. And one small tip, if you ever visit, don't forget your cash. And that's it for this week. Join me and the team, as I say, for our Christmas special. For now, thanks for listening. Happy Christmas and goodbye.